All right, we are live. This is the More to the Story podcast, and I'm coming to you from Orlando, Florida today. And this is a live podcast where I'm bringing two friends and scholars who have unique thoughts about a thing that is going on in culture moment in the moment, particularly as it relates to a recent Super Bowl ad from the He Gets Us campaign, which has been around for a while. But before I get into too much of that, I want you to know this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders for faithful churches. And even as we confront and think through issues like we're going to deal with today, we want to be thinking Christians who bring our ideas and these thoughts to scripture. And I am so thankful to have these two friends of mine to join me. Now, Steve and Rob, thank you for joining me this afternoon. I wanted to just take a minute and just highlight what's happened. There's been this campaign that's been around for a while. And, and most of the time that the commercials or ads are aired, people have had a little bit of friction with it. Um, the He Gets Us campaign seems to have like a perspective of, uh, and they've identified this, some of the scholars that are connected to them call this work free evangelism, that if it gets Christians like us frustrated, that that's then that we're not the intended audience. They're trying to get the people who think that Christianity is hateful and that there's problems with it, and they're just trying to pave the ground so that there'll be an opportunity for the gospel to be proclaimed later. Certainly, I can appreciate the way that people have a desire to bring Jesus into the world and to bring the gospel message, if that's indeed what's happening, um, into this context. But you both, I've, as I've seen the Twitterverse and Facebook respond, you both have had different slants that I think could help my audience and people connected to Wesley Biblical Seminary. So I wanted to just take some time to hear from you a little bit. And I want, Steve, um, you had a unique perspective, too, with using the same words and highlighting a theme that I think is important in, in our tradition, uh, I'm speaking kind of in the broad evangelical Wesleyan tradition that thinks about the way that people are got, so to speak. He gets us. Tell us what you had in mind with that, Steve. Well, of course, I was uh, um, reading a lot of the commentary, which was critical of the... Um, of the campaign and especially those ads. And I found myself in mostly hearty, hearty agreement with um, much of the criticisms. Um, but as I, I was sitting there thinking about it and I thought, well, he gets us. Yeah, all right. I can see why someone would want to let people know that Jesus understands and Jesus cares and Jesus uh, can relate to you wherever you find yourself, whatever your conditions, whatever your circumstance. I could see how anybody would would want to highlight that for people, especially um, in a in a culture that's ours, which is kind of post-Christian, in the sense that there are some dangling Christian concepts around. Um, but the essence of the gospel is not understood by the vast majority of people. As I was thinking about that, I, I just thought of the I thought about that phrase, he gets us. And then I thought, okay, well, the the intent of the the promo promotional campaign, uh, Jesus' PR firm, is um <laughs> is to say to people, listen, he gets you, he understands. 
you can trust him. But then I thought, okay, if that is, if you think of that as pre-evangelism, how could that possibly really be pre-evangelism if the true crux of the matter is not being presented to people? And therefore, my emphasis in my little Facebook post was to change it from he gets us, and that's supposed to be the emphasized word in that phrase for the promo campaign, right? It's on the it's on the uh, objective pronoun, us. He gets us. Uh, and I thought, well, you can take that same phrase and you can say that in the gospel, Jesus Christ came to get us. Mm. That to reach out and bring us into relationship with him, bring us into redemption through him, to bring us to God by way of him. And in that sense, he came to get us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was, that's what I focused on. He gets us can be understood to mean, does Jesus really get my full get our full surrender does jesus really get our full recognition that he is lord does jesus really get from us the response that the one who came to give his life as a sacrifice and a ransom for the sins of the world and was raised from the dead in order to uh, be proclaimed as the son of God and demonstrated to be the son of God for our redemption, is he really getting all of me? Am mm -hmm. I responding with all of who I am? And then my last statement was to say, and the only way that Jesus can get us is if we insist that we must confess that we are broken. We must confess that we are wounded, and we must confess that we are sinful. And then we must repent out of our brokenness. We must repent away from our woundedness, and we must repent and turn away from our sinfulness and toward the Lord Jesus. And in doing so, we are acknowledging and then confessing that we need the redemption of our lives to recreate us, to restore us to what God would have us be. Yes. And what he came to, and what Jesus came in order to make possible for us to become, that we need that transforming grace at work in us. So that I just tried to do this little play on words. Okay, maybe if you think it's important that he get you, that in terms of he understands you and who you are and what your issues are, that's okay, that's, a, that's all right. But Far more important is whether or not he gets you and mm -hmm. that response and your response to him getting you is that he gets you. Yes. So that that was just my endeavor. I wasn't trying to be uh, generous to them necessarily. <laughs> use the, the phrase and turn it to what I think is a much more uh, gospel adequate and a New Testament-centric and Christ-centered uh, message. 
Yes, I love this. It reminds me of the verse in, in 2 Corinthians where there's this argument that's moving in this direction of thinking of, and it's, it's often mistranslated, it acts as if we are triumphing in Christ, but it says, thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma and knowledge of him everywhere. I think that's interesting in light of this conversation about evangelism. What is it that we're doing? Actually, it's that we're defeated as the old Presbyterian hymn says, make me a captive Lord. And then at last I shall be free. It's like, we are the ones who are God, like he comes and gets us. He gets all of us. And th there's some of that that's missing in this e expression of a, of a campaign that's just trying to manage perceptions of what actually happens in the Christian experience when we come to Christ. It's not just having a good view of Jesus and his humanity, it's actually that he gets us. Um, yeah, go ahead, Steve. I'll let you add there. And I want to ask, bring Robert in. I could in. just add a bit to what you just said. Ultimately, um, and we can bring this up in a little bit, but ultimately, the challenge of the church is not to make Jesus palatable to the world. As a matter of fact, if we begin to make Jesus palatable to the world, then we have effectively redefined Christ. And we we may in we may be tending in the direction of an antichrist message if that's the way we think about what the church has to begin to do. So I love what um, uh, Stanley Hauerwas uh, said uh, said in several of his books. He said the calling of the church is not to make the gospel relevant to the world. The gospel is already relevant to the world. The calling of the church is to make our lives relevant to the gospel, mm -hmm. that the world could see the gospel in us and through us, perhaps begin to desire to make its life relevant to the gospel. And I yeah. think this is a very important thing because we, we live in a day and age in which the exaltation of the self, mm -hmm. an entity that is kind of fixed or defined or is okay, um, and therefore, people need to be affirmed in their sense of identity or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then if you don't do it, you're not loving them. Whereas the Christian message is, where whether or not people like it, is the self that I think I am is actually a false self. Yes. It's a fiction of my own creation, and therefore, I must be delivered from it. And so the very idea that Christ would conquer me is not that he is coming to impose right dominating control over me although when he does that it's actually a blessing to me because he sets me free from darkness falsehood and self-imprisonment as well as my bondage to evil and and to sin itself and so that's the kind of thing the church ought to be focusing on how do we begin to help people question who it is that we think Jesus is Jesus ought to get, or who it is that we think we are that Jesus could possibly get. So anyway, yeah. let's stop right there. That's great. And I think it's when we do that, that we become the aroma of Christ to the world. Robert, you had an interesting um, uh, observation as well. This ad centered on various images where there was a person washing another person's feet. And 
uh, you helped us as, but not you wouldn't have to be a New Testament scholar to do this, but you are a New Testament scholar, just helping us see that's not exactly what the emphasis in scripture is on foot washing. Yeah, help us with that a little bit. Well, the first thing that occurred to me when I saw the, all the images of foot washing is the image of the sinful woman in Luke 7, second half of the chapter, who herself comes in to wash Jesus's feet with her tears mm -hmm. and to wipe his feet with her hair. The only the reason why she does that, as Jesus explains to the Pharisaic host, is because the woman has experienced um, a sense of extraordinary relief mm. from having been forgiven her sins. He doesn't say to the Pharisaic host, oh, she's no more of a sinner than you are. In fact, he actually gives a parable indicating she had a greater debt. Right. But the greater debt has given her a greater sense of gratitude to Jesus for having been forgiven that great debt. And clearly, that forgiveness has come as a consequence of hearing a gospel message that requires her to recognize her need for repentance from sin and to open up her heart to the extraordinary grace of God being presented in the gospel. In a sense, the message that's been conveyed by this ad has nothing to do with grace mm. because it has nothing to do with sin and the need for repentance and the extraordinary offer of forgiveness that God gives. I mean, that's what causes the woman to expend uh, herself completely on Jesus to be able to uh, break down in front of him in gratitude. There's no sense here. You could get the sense here. I'm getting my feet washed because I deserve to have them washed. Yeah. Mm. You know, I've been mistreated. I've been judged for what I've been doing, and I shouldn't have been judged for right. what I've been doing. So there isn't, I don't even, you know, I I've said that there is no gospel message here. Yeah, interesting. I'm not even sure that there's a pre-gospel message here. Wow. Because it essentially presents, when it says, when it encapsulate Jesus's message as, Jesus didn't teach hate. He washed feet. Right. There's there's nothing there that belongs to what is the summary of Jesus's message, according to the Gospel of Mark 115. The time has been fulfilled. The kingdom of God is drawn near. In other words, the time for decision has arrived with the power of God and the manifestation of God's kingly rule now being felt in a dramatic way on earth through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And the response of that, according to 115 of Mark, which Jesus repeatedly stated, was repent and believe in the gospel. Mm -hmm. None of those elements are present in this text. And I believe this is actually presenting, I don't think this is actually being presented as a pre-gospel message. I think it's being presented as an alternative mm. gospel message. And at the very, the best thing that I could say about this message is that it's a truncated message mm. of the gospel. And we know what Paul says in Galatians 1 about a truncated message of the gospel. It's no gospel. It's a different gospel, and as such, is not the gospel. It's not the good news that Christianity speaks. No, Jesus is differentiated from the Pharisees, not in the fact that he didn't judge sin to be sin. On the contrary, Jesus actually, if you look at the six antitheses opening the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you've heard it said in the scriptures or interpretation of scriptures 
but I say to you the following, and then Jesus actually intensifies or deepens God's demand, mm -hmm. not loosens it. Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes of the Pharisees and the uh, scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. And, and then there follows this deepening demand. So Jesus is the last person anybody should want to appeal to for a loosening of God's demand. That's simply not the portrait that, that we have of him. So the message is very, very confused. And further underscoring the confusion of the message is the one-sidedness of the people who get their feet washed, right? right. right? So it's, it's the LGBT. And who washes and who's washing the same both sides That's who's right. getting their face washed who it's almost like it assumes there's a person at the center who is the oppressor and then there's a people on the outside who are the oppressed or the marginalized yeah. and i i often as somebody who for 15 years worked in homeless ministry uh, and it's always interesting to me when people would talk about the marginalized to the marginalized you know it's, it's interesting yeah. the people that are supposedly marginalized but yeah i'm sorry i interrupted you a little well, bit no, you having said that uh, jarred my mind on something which is actually repentance is incorporated in these scenes but it's the christians doing the foot washing who are repentant. right right so the message here of these repeated scenes is the christians have been the purveyors of hate and now by coming around and washing feet they in effect have been penitent for that hate. Well, proclaiming a message of the need to turn from sin and to embrace God is not a message of hate. That is the gospel message. What right. makes Jesus different from the Pharisees is not that he doesn't pass judgment, as I just noted. He actually deepens the demand of God, but it's rather that Jesus reaches out uh, in love aggressively to the biggest violators of that demand with an extraordinary gracious offer that God is capable of forgiving all of that. Yes. Not taking a pound of flesh out of you, not requiring you to catch up with others who have been better than you all along, but simply, like the prodigal son, like the lost son, turn from your sin, because his return to his father in that parable is a metaphor for repentance. In Hebrew thought, return is repentance. He's coming back saying, I'm not even worthy to be called a son anymore. Yes. Right, So clearly he comes humbly, penitent, and the father is overjoyed with forgiveness. There's no humility here. There's no penitence. There's no even acknowledgement of sin, except for the sin of Christians mm -hmm. uh, who apparently hate people they disagree with, rather than reaching out in love to them. There's no, you know, there's an alternate version. I, I assume both of you have seen this since has come on YouTube. Yes. The ad that they could have produced, which is constantly emphasizing liberation that Jesus offers from the oppressive power of sin, transformative power leading to transformed lives. There are no transformed lives in this story. No mm. celebration of that. That's the whole focus, by the way, in the parable of the, of the lost son. It's the transformed life. It's the one who was once lost, now found. The one who was once dead now lives. Here in this story, the dead remain dead, the lost mm. remain lost. Mm. What kind of celebration is involved there? None. Yeah. Yeah. It's the Christians repenting, repenting of their harsh judgment. I got news for them. The judgment is the background scenario for Jesus's ministry. That's why he says repent. God is coming, and everybody in, in uh, early Judaism would have recognized what that meant. 
God mm. is coming as judge. He's going to right the wrong. He's going to bring justice to the um, by by uh, bringing judgment on those who have been sinning, which turns out to be all human beings, right? So we have one option. You know, I'd like to go with the option of okay, I'm on my face, hands up. I anything you got for me, Lord Jesus, I will take, because I know I have nothing mm. before you. I can bring nothing to to argue a case for my exemption from your judgment. I'm before your bar, your court, you're the judge, you're the jury, you're the witnesses, and it's not because of you uh, that I'm in the bad predicament that I'm in. It's because of me. And if you've got any grace available, I'll take it. There's no sense here. There's no sense of people coming before God's throne, recognizing they are before the high king, creator, redeemer of the universe, and they better get on their faces. That's right. It's now, Robert. I just wanted to uh, explicate something a little bit more from here. You say that it's a, at best an alternative gospel. What do you think? What if if it had to define the gospel of what we can see from these ads? What would that be? The gospel is this extraordinary offer of grace that if you turn from your sins to the one who can redeem you from those sins, Jesus Christ who makes amends for your sins through his atoning death on the cross. What an extraordinary act. The one who did no wrong, he offers his life in exchange for ours, for our benefit. You turn from your sins, you turn to that one who's so extraordinarily gracious, who simply says, if you believe in me, you are forgiven and you will be empowered by my spirit in your life. And then we see coming out of that, the transformed life. I mean, this is this is what Christianity, this has always been the strength of the church throughout its history, is the testimony about God's gracious forgiveness and the empowerment through his spirit to transform my life from what it once had been to what it now is. Such were some of you, but no longer, right? And again, they get that in this message to some extent, but in an inverse sort of way, because as I noted earlier, you don't, they're not having people who are getting their feet washed who are racist, and economic mm. exploiters of the poor. Now, why don't they have that? Or or people who are committing sexually immoral offense, offenses that even the left would regard as sexually immoral, perhaps incest, um, something really bad that even the less left still gets. The reason why they don't show such persons having their feet washed is they are afraid that it would convey the impression that they are being accepted in their sins. Mm. That's mm -hmm. why they don't do it. They have no concern about that, though, with regard to abortion or LGBTQ sexual immorality, because actually they're leaning in the direction of approving that. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. they would never have racists have their feet washed, never have economic exploiters having their feet washed, never having those committing incest having their feet washed, because they don't want to convey an erroneous impression. What does mm -hmm. that tell you mm -hmm. about the people who produced yeah. this ad? Yep. It, it tells you that they're basically okay. The, the sins for which Christians have been calling people to repentance are not, in fact, real sins. Right. It's the it's, sin of the Christian calling yeah. them to repentance. <laughs> this this is this interesting moment that we're in as we're having to work through this time of hearing these stories that are leading us in a way that thinks that this is indeed the problem, as opposed to there being another solution, another opportunity. Uh, Steve, I'm curious what you might think the um, 
what what what's the what is their aim? What do you think that they're trying to accomplish in this story? I mean, through these ads and 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 as somebody who's teaching apologetics, you're teaching students at Wesley Biblical Seminary that we need to uh, of how to present the gospel in their context. Um, what might be missing from that? Uh, what it, so I'm, I'm asking you a two part question. What is it that they're doing? And, and then um, w what's wrong with that? Well, um, I'm going to hold off on assessing okay. their end game motivations too precisely. Although I think Robert is on to the trail that there's a different, there's, there's a different agenda here um, that's not really exactly, at, it's not anywhere near adequate. Let me well, jump in there real quick, Steve, sorry, as you're, uh, just as a point of information, as we say this, I have looked up to the fact that there, if you go to the website and you want to be referred to an affirming church that would not see uh, LGP sexual immorality as a sin, that they would refer you to that church. And so people have run these experiments to show that. So as far as their their agenda, they they certainly are willing to refer people yeah. to. And so I'm sorry to interrupt you, Steve, but I just want I was wanting to get that in, uh, at one point when Robert was saying something. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but. There is a bit of the end game that we know a at least a little bit. I'm sure people, and I pray, I do, and I have prayed that people would be led to the truth because maybe of these ads, maybe despite these ads. Okay, I interrupted you, Steve, but I wanted to get that point of information in there. That's okay. I've been interrupted by way better people than you, so it doesn't oh. matter. <laughs> uh, well, what I was saying was I, uh, I, I don't want to ever judge the depths of someone's mind or heart although it seemed i was affirming that it seemed to me obvious that they there is an agenda which is an affirmational kind of agenda of acceptance but i will tell you this well i can't i cannot necessarily say that i could uh determine or judge the original intent i do know what the downstream result will be and the downstream result is exactly what robert described it will be a truncated gospel which is not the gospel at all and which is actually ultimately an anti-gospel <laughs> and that that is that in that sense then it is a it is a profoundly dangerous thing now let me let me take about another one of the themes Jesus didn't preach hate, he washed feet. I'd like to make a, a comment about that and then ask yeah. Robert a question for his, for his input and reflection on my humble take as a philosopher do, doing exegesis because I, I do read Greek, so um, even New Testament Greek. But when someone says preaching hate, I, I've been accused of this multiple times by people because of being on campuses or other places and doing apologetics and talking about moral questions, especially the LGBTQ issues or other kinds of issues like pro-life stuff or any number of things that, that 
young people and even not so young people um, sort of look out on the landscape and they see all these things being practiced. And so people have said to me, you are a purveyor of hate. You, you have a hateful message. And I'd think, okay, well, that's entirely possible. You know, I'm a, I'm, I may be redeemed and hopefully being sanctified, but I'm still, I'm still living in a fallen world and I'm not yet what I shall be and all of that. It's entirely possible. But let me ask you something. Why am I being hateful? I said, well, because you are not willing to accept people the way they are and bring them and show them the love of God. And I said, well, wait a second. Well, let's back up just a second. What if I believe that God designed human life to be expressed and lived out in a certain way in terms of sexual morality? And or in family life, to receive children and nurture them in love. So what if I believe God designed life to be lived in a certain way, and he created human beings to be bearers of his image, and therefore the only way to be a truly flourishing, filled with goodness, love, joy, and life, and meaning, and purpose uh, as a human being is to realize Anything that is not living, taking me in the way that God would have my life be lived is a detriment to me and to anybody else. And therefore, when I talk to people, I, I'm, I'm motivated to help them find a way to flourish in their lives, emotionally, interpersonally, certainly spiritually before God. And these things that I name or that I try to speak to them in corrective terms about are things from my point of view which are destructive to their personhood because they're contrary to the image of God and also they're contrary to being able to live in fidelity to a relationship, as Robert put it, to a holy God who created us for that kind of holy fellowship. I said, now what if that's my motivation? I could be wrong. All of my theology, all of my metaphysics could be filled with baloney. But you can't tell me I'm hateful. Right. Because what I'm motivated by is love for these oh, people. Oh, Steve. Steve, you're a self-deceived, hateful person. <laughs> I'm sorry to break the news to you, but yeah. somebody has to say it. Okay, yeah. so that's always going to be their response, right? Because their barometer, their... Their truth claim is centered around the affirmation of abortion and gay and trans rights. Everything else has to be reoriented around that. So by definition, everything that doesn't support that is hateful. Yeah. But I mean, they get the fact, again, I'm, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt again here. They get the fact that you can criticize genuine sin in fact, should criticize genuine sin of an extreme or egregious sort, and there's nothing hateful about that. And they have no problems, uh, of course. That, who's going to have any problem with criticizing uh, an egregiously racist person? Right. Or an egregious economic exploiter of the poor? And who's going to claim you're hateful to do that? Nobody, right? So Jesus reaches out to tax collectors. 
who has a justly deserved reputation for collecting many times more than they were supposed to collect, to fellow Jews who are living on the economic margins of life, and because of their extortion when they came to your home, your family now starves. Who is going to support that kind of behavior? Who is going to say that to criticize that kind of behavior is hateful? Not even the people, not even the folk that he gets us would say that. Again, <laughs> that's why such persons were not getting their feet washed. Because they really are committing egregious sin and everybody agrees with it. Nobody believes that when Jesus reached out to exploitative tax collectors, that he was in any way moderating God's demand against exploitation of the poor. He was well within the prophetic trajectory on that score and even intensified further that demand. So we see that completely as love. But suddenly when we hit the parallel case of Jesus reaching out to sexual sinners, we think that must be because he didn't critique their sexual sin. Yeah. And it's absurd. This is the, Both cases are in tandem. You can't say, we can't take one view about Jesus' right. approach to tax collectors and a totally different view of Jesus' approach to sexual sinners. Right. Both were at high risk of exclusion from the kingdom of God. Jesus called them to repentance. If they didn't repent, they don't get to inherit the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims. That's the message of love. But when it comes to the favored elite sins of the left, those things make any call to repentance hateful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so this is a complete inconsistency on their part. They know that there isn't they know that there isn't a diametrical opposition between a call to repentance um, on the one hand and love on the other. They know that a call to repentance is entirely consistent with love when they actually believe that the individual is engaged in egregious sin for which culture should actually tear them apart, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's the hypocrisy of the narrative. And it's the failure to look in the mirror and see them themselves in it. Uh, we have to recognize that the things that they don't want to be calling sin, and I'm glad you found that. I did not know, uh, Andy, that they're actually referring people to so-called affirming churches. The only real affirming church is a church that affirms somebody's creation in God's image. Mm, mm -hmm. And that church does not affirm behavior uh, that degrades or dishonors the person created in God's image. And unfortunately, that's what this ad is promoting. Mm. Well, I would list, I just like to say that I'm fully aware that my, my response to them can elicit that particular kind of response. But, and it has actually, which then I have a further conversation with them about, uh, well, let's talk about how you define what it means to be a human being to start with. And um, oftentimes they don't even want to get into that discussion because they have basically bought what is the result of, of a, of a quasi postmodern existentialist view of human existence in which all we have is our kind of our bald, excuse the imagery, the bald human existence. There's no essence to being human. We just have our existence. There's no defining nature that we should live into. And so therefore, self-creation and self-definition, that's their starting point. And 
I try to make people even defend that philosophically, which which they don't want to. And so it it always it always descends into name calling, and I'm I'm fine. But but I was as you were talking just now, uh, I was thinking of something that you said at the uh, conference that we had almost a year ago now. And I think you, I think it was, I'm, I'm almost positive. I'm positive it was you. I could, my memory could be failing, but you were talking about being in a discussion or a debate with someone over Jesus's sexual ethics. And finally, the guy's response was, well, I just disagree with Jesus. Yeah, that was right. me. Yeah. <laughs> Not the one who disagreed with Jesus, but the one who had the debate. <laughs> and so um, when people would, some people must say, well, then Jesus himself was somewhat bigoted somewhat self-deceived, somewhat uh, blinded to a greater reality. And so if I can be, if people can uh, persecute me and say all manner of evil against me falsely for his sake, I will rejoice and be glad. But let me yeah. say one other, let me say one other thing. Let me ask you a question about this. I've thought long, I've thought long and hard and done a lot of reading uh, in based on commentaries, basically about this, in, the takeoff image for the this last ad campaign, he didn't preach Haiti washed feet, is John 13, of course, right? Now, if I'm remembering, and I'm pretty sure I have, because I looked it up just before we had our time together, Jesus comes to his disciples, he he undresses uh, down to you know, down to the towel and um has the basin and Foot washing was a way of cleansing people from sort of like the accumulated sin of walking through a pagan, pagan-filled streets and that sort of thing. And when he comes to comes to Peter, Peter Peter says, um, "You think you're going to wash my feet? That's not going to happen." Jesus said, "Well, if I don't wash you, you can't have any part of me." And then he says, well, just wash, wash my head and my hands, everything. He says, well, wait a second. You're already clean by the word I've spoken to you. But somehow Jesus still needs to cleanse them in some way. So I think that, I think even the takeoff from this ad on the Super Bowl is a, is a wrong understanding because the foot washing of Jesus in John 13 seems to me to have everything to do with making us clean from our sins and not simply showing us love and kindness and service and being accepting. Um, but, it, but it's about some deeper meaning. And so when, he, when Jesus says, okay, I'm your master. If I've done this for you, you should do this for one another. Maybe the deeper meaning of that is not simply we should be nice servants to each other, have a servant-like heart, but we should endeavor to help one another live clean lives before God. Yes, um, I think there's a, a, I actually think there's a dual dimension here. I think uh, it's more of a both and, but uh, it is clear from the, from the text that Jesus, the only time Jesus has shown washing feet is washing the feet of his disciples, washing the feet of those who are his followers. There's never any intimation of Jesus going around and washing the feet of people who are not his followers. Yeah. And that's partly because part of the action is symbolic of the fact of the washing away of their sins uh, that will take place with Jesus' atoning death, in which Jesus is anticipating 
by washing the feet of his followers at the present time. To wash the feet of those who are not his followers is essentially sending the message that you're already washed. Mm. Apart from repentance, apart from believing in the gospel, apart from following me as a disciple. And that simply is a false message. Now, there is a second message, which, of course, uh, that they should serve one another. But the one another in the reference is not people outside. It's people within the family of God who mm -hmm. have already been washed. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it would be a premature process to be washing the feet of those who refuse to be washed by mm -hmm. the atoning blood of Jesus because it requires a turn from sin and an embrace of Christ and all that he offers, which means, of course, a transformed life away from your previous existence. Now, I have discovered here, Andy, I have to note here, I've discovered that Steve is just too nice a person. <laughs> and I'm sorry to say that to you, Steve, but I'm, it has to be said, uh, because he's unwilling, I believe, because he's too nice, to follow the breadcrumbs and the trail that leads to the motivation behind putting forward an ad such as this. Yeah, sure. This is warmed over, left-wing, so-called liberal, woke Christianity. This is what this is an advertisement for. Mm. It has nothing to do with the historic message of the gospel as put forward by Jesus and the apostolic witness to them. The enemies here are clear. It's the Christians who criticize others for having sins, which, in fact, the he-gets-us crowd doesn't believe anymore are really sins. Okay, so, and, and the fact that, Andy, you could find that, you know, to the affirming churches also fits what they say about LGBTQ persons, which is they feel judged. Yeah. Oh, my goodness, you feel judged by God because, because you're violating God's standards. You, you should feel judged. You, you are under judgment. We're all under judgment and have to repent and turn to Christ. And, and they also complain that, that we have ignored their stories and experiences. You know what? Jesus didn't spend time with the exploitative tax collectors trying to find out what their stories and experiences were, because that would indicate some degree of sympathy with the very sin that is putting them into trouble to begin with. <laughs> so that isn't the, the kind of thing that the church should be doing. That gets us nowhere except back to sin, not to repentance. Uh, Jesus loves gay and trans people. Well, who says he doesn't? Of course, he died for us all. But what they perceive as love is, again, another version of a truncated form of love, which yes. is not interested in a full-orbed reclaiming of the individual out from the sin that oppresses them. Um, they're invited, according to this uh, sentence in He Gets Us website, to explore the story of Jesus and to consider for themselves what that might mean for their life. Right. That's not the Christian gospel message. You get yeah. the, you exploitative tax collectors. I, I invite you to consider whether yeah. or not your exploitation of the poor is erroneous. I invite those who are sexually immoral to consider for themselves whether they're engaging in sin. The message of Jesus, look, the kingdom of God is coming. It's coming in power. It's God's kingly rule is being felt. That means judgment is a potential uh, future element that we're going to be facing. What do you do in the face of God's coming in judgment? You're not dialoguing with God. You know, maybe you're wrong about this God, this sin stuff. Not really. I don't think I did do sin. This is not a dialogue. God is the yeah. creator of the universe. 
He's the redeemer. He's going to root out sin and evil. It, it, it's, you know, get back to Job, right? At a certain point in the Job narrative, Job, Job realizes, I've said more than I know, right? Because mm -hmm. God's already told him. You know, when I was measuring the span between the galaxies, I don't recall asking your opinion about what the measurements of the universe would be. Oh, that's right. Okay, Job now gets it. Okay, I am not God, right? And this is a key problem being faced by the left. They are not God. Mm -hmm. They don't get to dictate to God what is acceptable and what isn't. They have to follow the consistent message that we find all throughout Scripture. And the issue of taking human life or the issue of violating the male-female foundation for marriage or even obscuring the very definition of sex or gender itself and its biological components in transgenderism. This is not up for negotiation, right. not from Genesis to Jesus to Revelation. It is not up for negotiation. We're not asking you your opinion. We're not asking you to explore what you might think be amenable to your life or not. This is the message. You've yeah, got to yeah. repent of it, turn from sin, turn from evil. You know, when the, when the son, the prodigal son again, I like, I like to go back to that example because Alistair Begg, used it as an example for why you should be able to go to a gay wedding when it right, actually right. said the exact opposite. So I'm continually drawn back to that text. You know, the, the youngest son isn't coming back to the father and saying, you know, I'd like to explore whether my wasteful use of healthy <laughs> inheritance, and, and, yeah. and by the way, the, spending some of that money on prostitutes, which is noted in the text, I'd like to explore whether, you know, that's really much of an issue or a problem, you know? You think that the father would have been ordering the slaying of the fatted calf for a celebration with that kind of situation? Absolutely not. Yeah. Because in the deeper metaphorical sense, even if the son returned, he would still be lost. Yeah. He would still be dead, not alive, not found. So this is why, again, this is, I, I got to be, you know, maybe it's because I'm not as nice as you, Steve. I, I'm following the breadcrumbs here and I'm saying, this is a very dangerous anti-gospel message yeah. that they're conveying. And we, we as Christians have to attack it as such and well, make clear that this has no correlation to the gospel whatsoever. I would, first of all, I appreciate uh, you telling me I'm too nice because <laughs> yeah, well, I, have, I have rarely heard that in my life. Well, it's, it's all relative, Steve. So but, uh, relative to me. I would say this, that when it comes to pugilism, there are two kinds of pugilists. There's the Mike Tyson, Robert Gagnon type, <laughs> and then there are the counter punchers. <laughs> I'm kind of a counter puncher, yeah. uh, you know, but you're exactly right. And we'll go back to go back to an essential statement I was trying to make early. I, I, I was not maybe clear about earlier. Is ultimately in the if we're going to do pre-evangelism, if there's such a thing as that then the pre-evangelism has to be taking head on the anthropology that is the dominant philosophical frame of reference for the modern West, which is sort of postmodern self-creationist uh, existentialism with a kind of Marxist oppression twist to it. We have to take that head on if we're going to do pre-evangelism. We have to call that into question and we, we can do that biblically and, and philosophically and otherwise.
And then secondly, we have to, I think you've hit upon it, Robert, very strongly and well, that ultimately um, the things that are being promoted, in, especially in that ad at the Super Bowl, these represent the sacraments mm-hmm. of the modern of 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 all of leftism, but they are increasingly sacramental uh, uh, within progressive Christianity. Yeah. So just as uh, just as Protestantism had two sacraments, but also recognized the importance of other things like marriage and the, and and in the Eastern Orthodox, you have seven mysteries and. In Catholicism, you have seven sacraments. In progressive Christianity, you got some kind of baptism that doesn't really mean anything, some kind of uh, communion that doesn't really mean anything. And then there are the sacraments of abortion, the sacraments of sexual uh, self-definition, the sacraments of LGBT stuff, and then especially increasingly the sacraments of the sacrament of affirmation of transgenderism. And these things really are as you as you alluded to in uh, your your you know using me as uh, as uh, the uh, the punching bag to 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 reference my too niceness that these really are the things that for them are the measures by which they falsely determine out of their own spiritual blindness and their theological superficiality whether yeah. or not someone really is a Christian. This is really good. I'm sorry to interrupt because I, I almost just want to just let you guys keep going back and forth. I am. I do have a little bit longer. Originally said I could only go to the hour, but I can go a few more minutes after that, maybe five to 10 more minutes after that. It's interesting, this conversation about pre-evangelism. You know, it's kind of interesting in light of that is that they say this Jesus didn't teach hate. Jesus washed feet. And I've heard uh, Ed Stetzer, who's a scholar and, you know, kind of public Christian personality that I've heard a lot. He's kind of one of the consultants on this campaign. And so the fact that he supports it, that caused me to listen a little more closely. But he nevertheless is trying to say, this isn't for Christians. This is trying just to get people in the door. This is pre-evangelism. And that that, that term keeps, keeps being used. But who's to say that foot washing is something culturally that anyone who's not a Christian could understand? Like, I, what, what's that supposed to mean to anybody? It's a deeply religious, biblical idea in general. And, and I think it it assumes kind of some sort of haunted biblical culture or biblical understanding behind it. And it probably just means, oh, he it's acceptance. Foot washing is total acceptance. And is interesting parallel with, uh, I, Robert, I appreciate you bringing up the fact that there there's a connection here. Uh, ideologically between what's happening with um, the move towards embracing people's attendance and participation in same-sex weddings or transgender weddings and that kind of thing. I think there it's like, oh, well, we just have to do what we can to get our foot in the door and then we can bring them along. And I've seen this with the marketing firm that's involved with this. Um, the marketing firm Lerma is also the firm that currently, and then the leaders in it were with a fir- former firm that led the Salvation Army's efforts for the their branding promise, doing the most good, which a lot of people within the Salvation Army who see it as their ecclesial home resisted because it felt like it was taking 
Jesus out of the missions. What are we being saved from? Now, if you're really going to do the most good, you're going to be concerned about somebody's eternal soul, and you're going to tell them everything that Robert said passionately, that there's a judge who's coming, and we want the ultimate good for that person. But instead, what's, what's come and what the messaging behind doing the most good is, is very similar to what we have here. There's a reluctance to stand up against anything that moves against the sacraments of the left for fear, because after all, we want to win them. We want to win them. We don't want to offend them. Please don't be offended. And so if that ends up being the case that's being made, I see this consistent message. And it might just be with a couple of people. So I'm interested, uh, well, a, a couple of groups that are asserting this message altogether. So I'm interested, is the, is Help, help me understand, pre-evangelism, is that a thing? And if it is, Robert, um, what would be involved with pre-evangelism? If somebody wants to know about pre-evangelism, they should start with Paul's magisterial letter to the Romans. Pre-evangelism for Paul in that shows demonstrating that all that people are in big trouble, Jews and Gentiles alike, yeah. because they have intentionally suppressed the truth about God accessible to them in even the material structures of creation, even if they don't have the direct revelation of scripture or don't accept it, even from the way in which God makes things, people ought to know from the clues that God provides to everybody in the world, that they are doing things that are problematic for a relationship with the one true real God. That's pre-evangelism, focusing on sin, focusing on the need that people have to receive Jesus. You can't just start with repent and believe in the gospel in a culture like this, which has no understanding of personal sin. In fact, I've been at theological institutions, not the current one that I'm in or the one that I will be in, uh, but in previous ones where the idea of sin itself was attacked. Sure, sure. This is not an issue. I'm thinking, like, oh, really? You know, it was an issue for the entire church. It was an issue for John the baptizer. It was an issue for Jesus, who was baptized by that figure, and it was an issue for the apostolic witness to him that were his followers. So that's the only, and there's no preparation here for that. It's the exact antip antithesis. If there is a pre-gospel message, they didn't get it. Mm. And the fact that Ed Stetzer was behind it is not surprising to me at all, because I think Ed Stetzer would like to attack what he calls the culture warriors. He would like mm. to have this sort of innocuous version of the Christian faith that doesn't actually address uh, head on the truth of the gospel and somehow win people with this sort of stealth message. Um, I don't know about others, but that didn't work for me. You know, I had to realize that I personally, despite the fact that I, I thought I was a good person, I'm looking at the other schmucks around me and I'm thinking, hey, compared to them, I'm looking pretty good. Yeah, okay, yeah. but compared to God, yes. if one can have even a conception of a God, a holy God, a God entirely set apart from all sin, or even when it's just merely commonplace, that should set someone to a journey to realize, oh my goodness, I'm nowhere close. Yeah, I can't yeah. use a horizontal standard. I have to use a vertical standard to try to image a God who is perfect, and to recognize that I am such a flawed human being and so far from that. And I want to get just dovetail quickly to a related point about that. You know, when we're saying this and we're speaking the truth, it's not that we're not speaking the truth in love. What I don't like to see is I don't like to see deception. Yes. 
And I don't like to see a dilution of the gospel that ends up being no gospel at all, because mm -hmm. then it saves nobody. Right. The kind of preparation that they're doing for this ad is no preparation at all for the gospel, because it's essentially conveying to those who have getting their feet washed, they right. have done nothing wrong. It's those who previously weren't washing their feet. They are the ones that are hateful. Yes. And that is a completely misguided impression. You want to know what one of Jesus's preparations for the gospel with regard to sexual ethics? We see it in Matthew 5, in between his statement about adultery of the heart, now extending God's demand for sexual purity, not just to what you do with the body, but to your interior life itself. And mm -hmm. then following that, no divorce and remarriage after divorce, uh, based on a very rigorous understanding of the sexual binary that God intentionally creates and thereby allows only two persons in a sexual union, whether at any one time concurrently or serially in a revolving door of divorce and re remarriage after divorce for any cause. And in between those two very hard sayings, and everybody I think here would certainly acknowledge those are hard sayings. Again, sure. Jesus doesn't appear to be making it easier in <laughs> sexual ethics. He appears yeah, to be yeah. making it harder. And in between those two, does anyone remember what Jesus says? Don't mean to put you on the spot. Oh, either. sorry. Go and sin no more. I don't know. If your hand, eye, or foot should threaten your downfall, cut it off. Mm. Because it's better to go into heaven maimed than to wow. be thrown into hell full-bodied. That's Jesus' preparation yeah. for the gospel. Wow. Okay? <laughs> it, does that even remotely look like anything that we saw in this ad? Yeah. No, this yeah. ad is the antithesis of that message by Jesus. So why would we want to even think that this is somehow good preparation for the gospel? It's yeah. the opposite of good preparation for the gospel. And Ed Stetzer and anyone else that had any hand in this should be completely ashamed of themselves. And had Paul been here to address this or Jesus himself, it would have been an entirely different approach. And you might think that my response is actually relatively mild compared to what <laughs> their response would be. And yet nobody would be able to charge Jesus with being hateful. I mean, that's their point, isn't it? That he's not hateful. But but actually, they do think Jesus is hateful. That's yeah. the sad thing about this. That's right. That's because right. if they actually preach the real Christ, yeah, yeah, they would regard that as hateful. It's only yeah. because they're recreating Jesus in their image yeah. That they can say he's not hateful because he looks like us. Yeah. You know, and we're not hateful. So that's the picture we have to go with. But the real Jesus would stun them. Yeah. It's funny. I, mean, I don't think that they that people that it's actually a problem because Jesus has been so manipulated, the, the person of Jesus, the historical Jesus in our culture, that I don't actually think that people are aware of who he really is. The, the I don't think that they they almost need to even say Jesus doesn't teach hate. I think that most people have been so emphasizing the the love and the gentleness of Jesus that they don't see the full picture of him. Okay, we're running and, out. Just I, I go, get, can I say yeah. something really quick? And yeah, yeah, I would put Christians, evangelical progressive, so-called progressive evangelical Christians at the forefront of that. When you look at the programmatic statement of Jesus's message that's found in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount in chapters five to seven. How does that sermon end? It ends with three very strong warnings, right? Broad is the path and the gate that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road and gate that leads to life. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I say, I never knew you because yeah. you didn't bear the fruit that you were supposed to bear. Who is it that's going to be saved when the kingdom of God arrives? It's those who not only hear my words, but do them. Mm -hmm. Those who merely hear the words are like those who build their house on sand. And when the storm comes, the cataclysm is total. So you've got a triad of warnings ending the Sermon on the Mount, which effectively communicates that what, I, what Jesus said earlier, you used to be able to get away with the following, but now I'm closing that loophole. He yeah. meant it. Mm. And even you see that even in the very center of the sermon, which is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer starts all wonderful, right? Our Father is in the heavens. Great. We've got this wonderful family, kindred relationship with God. But how does it end? Bring us not into a time of trial and temptation. In other words, that could lead to our apostasy and extermination. Because God is capable of doing that as judgment for our sins. Yeah. So that's the message. And it's not the message being communicated by these, uh, by this ad or by the he gets us folk. Yeah. Steve, I'm going to give you just a second here, an opportunity to give like a one, maybe two minute kind of closing statement here. Um, I just want folks to know that if you're listening to this and you're, you're kind of tuning in to what we're saying, you're watching this later on a podcast or something like that. Um, if this teaching is interesting to you, and if you're like, yeah, I, I was, I had a little uneasiness with it. You know, Wesley Biblical Seminary might be the type of place you want to study. Even if you're just a lay person who's interested in auditing a few classes, um, uh, we would love for you to think about coming to us because we're, we're trying. We, we think that the, the faith once for all delivered to the saints is something that needs to be proclaimed. And that's what the church is longing for. And not just the church. Every person that's ever existed is longing for this message that the Lord Jesus Christ has by his suffering and death made an atonement for the whole world. So that whosoever will may be saved. Like this is something that's available to us. And he wants to get you. And at Wesley Biblical Seminary, if I can say so, as academic dean, we'd love to get you studying with us so you can hear from people like these gentlemen. Steve, would you give us kind of a one one last word, and then I'll close this out after that? Sure. Um, well, first of all, uh, I think Robert would agree with this, that the left, generally speaking, whatever progressivism is, has been able to infiltrate Christianity for a number of reasons. But the main reason it's got a foothold is it, it figured out how to do a jujitsu move and that is to move christian conscience or to to utilize christian conscience christian sensitivity about loving people against christians by redefining what it means to love them and so I, people need to be aware of that from the beginning which is why when i was trying i, I described how i say to people, well, if I believe these things about life and humanity and what it means to be human and live before God and we have a certain nature we should live into. So Christians need to realize when somebody calls you hateful, um, the best response is just to say, well, you say that like that's a bad thing. <laughs> Tell me what's wrong with what I just said, you know? And then the the final thing is, is really this. If I have a feeling that there are, I have a feeling that there are some Christians who no longer really believe, as Robert has been trying to emphasize, that there actually is judgment that's a part of our existence. 
There'll be judgment in this life, but there's going to be a certain judgment. And thanks be to God in Jesus Christ, the eternal word became flesh and dwelled among us to be the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But any message that we have that contributes to people not recognizing they must turn away from that which will destroy them in order to turn to God and receive life, anything that undercuts that and mitigates or waters down the dynamic of real repentance to both turn away and turn toward anything that does that is a damning anti-gospel and it's ultimately going to be anti-christ well thanks steve i think it's a great uh, helpful uh, cautious way you know warning to what we might be entering into here and why we need to be cautious as we listen to these messages. Thank you both. Robert, thanks for coming on. It's great to see you again. Thank and you. I, 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 we'll be having some more news, hopefully coming out here soon of, of, about what's happening with you and in your ministry. So thankful for all that you're doing. Steve, thanks for your time today. I'll be closing it out here. So I won't see you all after I, I finish this podcast, but thanks for coming and checking this out. Find out more about Wesley Biblical Seminary at wbs.edu. God bless you all. Blessings. Bye Thank now. you.